Bibles, you can open with me to John chapter 12, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a kind of a unique passage uh, that falls in between uh, Palm Sunday, the events of Palm Sunday, and of course, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, this morning, it uh, should be uh, hopefully a good uh, encouragement, uh, but also just challenge for all of us here this morning. Uh, I, I don't know where you like to go for vacation. Uh, some people have specific spots that they try to go to, and some people, uh, you know, kind of go all over the place. Maybe it's to visit family. Uh, but maybe you have some elements of tradition, even in what you do. Uh, one of the things that our family enjoys doing that is a little bit weird is uh, when we are sort of out and about, uh, occasionally we try to stop when we have an opportunity and go to a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. I don't know if any of you have ever seen one of those. Uh, they are quite interesting and uh, kind of weird and uh, in, some, in some elements a little gross. Um, but that's probably what sort of attracts us to that. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but uh, Ripley, Robert Ripley, began these auditoriums, and there's wax museums and stuff, but he discovers all these different uh, uh, people and unusual characteristics of people uh, around the world, and he did this uh, for a long time, and so now you can go and you can see some of these, and they have museums that are uh, really all over the world, and uh, they're pretty interesting if you ever have a chance, but Ripley would introduce to readers uh, these unbelievable characters. They were sword swallowers and people who ate glass, a man who nailed his tongue to a piece of wood, another who lifted weights with a hook that was stuck through his tongue, uh, a woman that was missing the lower half of her body. He sketched men with horns on their heads, a, a child cyclops, an armless golfer, a fork-tongued woman, there were fish that climbed trees, wingless birds, four-legged chickens, peg-legged cows. Uh, he loved quirks in languages and word puzzles and palindromes. And uh, he just was fascinated by this stuff. Um, and this is what he said. He said, truth, you know, is really stranger than fiction. I have traveled the world over searching for strange and unsearchable things, unbelievable things, purple white men, and I know a man who has hanged, was hanged but still lives. Believe me when I tell you about a man who died of old age before he was six years old. The river in Africa that runs backwards, oysters that grow in trees, flowers that eat mice, fish that walk, and snakes that fly. Soon Ripley was introducing readers to such characters as James Thompson of Clovis, New Mexico, who traveled across the country entirely by wheelchair. Uh, Mary Rosa, of Nantucket, a Nantucket toddler, who found her mother's ring on a beach 21 years after it had been lost. Uh, uh, two brothers uh, who slapped each other's faces for 36 hours straight. <laughs> he found a lot of interesting things and a lot of kind of goofy things. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was interesting is over the years that he would do this, he would get thousands and thousands of letters from people that basically said, you're making this stuff up. There's no way that this could be true. There's no way that what you're saying is right. And Ripley loved that. He loved when that would happen. He actually had hired sort of a behind-the-scenes researcher, and he would go to the library every single day, seven days a week, for like 10 hours a day, and just research things. And Ripley, while he was wrong a couple of times, he prided himself on the fact that his research was accurate and it was true. And there was really, he one time said that there was nothing that he loved more than being called a liar and then proving people wrong with the unusual facts that he uncovered. You know, I think that sometimes, you know, in our own spiritual lives, we can look at things in our world, and we can look at things in Scripture, and there is a certain amount of doubt that can happen. 
And, and I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you've looked at something and you think, that just seems so incredibly crazy. I just can't imagine, I can't believe that that could possibly be true. And yet we don't have somebody who just basically researches facts and presents information, but we have a God who demonstrated the truth of who he is and what he was about and his purpose in our lives for each of us. But there is this reality that we have questions. If we're being honest, we have doubts from time to time about the things that are happening around us. We have doubts about why things happen. We have questions about the purpose of things that happen in our lives. And so there is this tension, right, that I think we would acknowledge that on one hand, we believe that Jesus in the Bible is the full revelation of all that we need and all that God desires for us. But on the other hand, we also would acknowledge that there are mysteries in this world, that there are things that we can't necessarily explain without faith. In fact, faith is the very thing that we are called to, right? I mean, that's, that is what our belief system is based around, is a belief in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we hold in this tension both the doubt that we have, these questions that come up, and the reality, the basis of that faith, Jesus Christ. And I think that that is at the core of what this passage that I want to look at with you this morning talks about and really gets at the heart of. Uh, but before we jump into John chapter 12, I want to remind us about a story. If you want to flip there, you can. But Mark chapter 9, there's a story about a man and his son. And his son is uh, conflicted with a demonic spirit. And uh, it's causing him to do all kinds of different things. And so in Mark, Mark chapter 9, starting verse 14, you can look at that story now or at another time. Uh, but basically, uh, this man brings his son to the disciples, and they're, they're not really able to do anything about it, and so he eventually brings him to Jesus, and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and so Jesus answered them, and he kind of speaks to the disciples. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so they brought him, the, the, the boy, and he saw that the spirit was in him there. And Jesus turned to the father, and he said, how long has this been happening? And he said, well, it's been happening since childhood. Uh, but this is what he says. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you notice that? If you can do anything. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And of course, the story ends and he turns and he casts out this spirit from the boy and the boy is healed. But I love this passage because in this, there is this question about can you do it? And, and again, if you go back and you look at this, Jesus said to him, if I can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I love this because I think that there is some rich truth for us in this, right? That there are times that we believe we, we've trusted Christ as our Savior. We believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible word. And yet, we experience unbelief. There are, there are doubts, there are questions. And, and so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what your past is exactly. But my sort of thought is this, is, you know, what are the things in your, in your life that have caused you question? You know, have there, is there a lingering question in your mind a, a reoccurring doubt that maybe comes upon you? Is there something in your faith journey that, that occasionally you just sort of go over it and go over it and go over it, and yet it doesn't really seem like you ever are able to find full resolution on what it is? I, I think that that doubt is real. And, and Jesus comes and he says, 
All things are possible for the one who believes. And so it puts us in a position where we have to turn to Christ and echo this father and say, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, there is this tension that exists with this though. Classical humanism says that doubt, while uncomfortable, is absolutely essential for life. Descartes said this, he said, if you would be a real true, or if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. That you should doubt all things. This is similar to what the founder of Buddhism said, doubt everything, find your own light. The only problem with this is that if you take their own advice, don't you have to doubt what they're saying? Right? I mean, it's a little contradictory. Contrary to the humanistic view, though, doubt is, that doubt is essential to life. The Bible says that doubt is the destroyer of life. Now, how, how can that be? James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 tells us that when we ask for God's wisdom, we're to ask in faith and without doubt. If we doubt God's ability to respond to our request, what would the point of be in asking him in the first place? God says that if we doubt while we ask, we will not receive anything from him because we are unstable. James 1.6 says, He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And so here's this tension, right? Doubt is the destroyer of life. That we should have faith that when we come to Christ, we need to come in full faith. And that if we have doubt, then we're not going to receive what God has for us. And you know, what's, what's the practical reality of our lives? There's doubt. We have questions. We, we can't uh, absolve and resolve every single element of life, of nature, of the world. There, there is this reality that we have questions in our own hearts. And so the remedy of doubt is faith. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17 tells us that. God gave us the Bible as a testimony of his works in the past so that we will have a reason to trust him in the present. You might remember David in Psalm 77. He said, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. In order for us to have faith in God, we must study to know what he has said. And once we have an understanding of what God has done in the past, what he has promised for us in our future, and what we can, or promised for us in our present, and what we can expect of him in our future, then we're able to act in faith instead of doubt. And, And so here's the point, and kind of here's where we're going with this, is that doubt is a reality for all of us. And yet, doubt is not a place or a position that we remain as people. It is a moving spectrum. And we are either moving in and towards faith, or what we're going to see today, that we are drifting away from faith and into unbelief. But no matter, wait, don't make any mistake about this, that when there is a seed of doubt in our hearts, we are moving We are not sitting in that place. There is a natural movement because of our sin nature, because of our weakness. There is a natural movement towards unbelief. And so if we are not actively moving in our doubts towards faith, in faith, then we will find ourselves sinking into unbelief. Again, this morning, I want to take a look at John chapter 12 And I want to look at this because John unpacks this idea of unbelief. And I think as he unpacks this idea of unbelief, it not only talks about our motivation for faith, but it also talks about our conduit of faith. How do we ensure that while doubts are normal and part of life, that we are moving in faith towards the goodness and salvation of God? John, again, begins this passage by talking about what unbelief really is and how unbelief can come out of our doubt. And so I want to share with you three principles of this, and then we'll look at Jesus's response. The first is this, is that unbelief is the rejection of miracles. 
It is the rejection of the works of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to start real slow here. Verse 37 in chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. This is what it says. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Now, I think that this is a really interesting statement that John is making here. Again, you have to remember here that they have just witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. They have just witnessed the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And Jesus has just talked to them about the importance of sacrifice, that, the, that sacrifice is what it's all about. That's what everything is pointing to, and specifically his sacrifice. And yet, John addresses unbelief. And specifically, he addresses this idea that all these signs have been before them, and still they did not believe him. The unbelief of overwhelming evidence of God at work. Notice in verse 37 that it says, so many signs. Jesus reached out and touched man with his compassion. He helped and he ministered to everyone he possibly could reach. In fact, in John chapter 21, verse 25, we're told that Jesus performed so many works and miracles that, they should be, that if they should be written, the whole world would not have room for the amount of books it would take. There is so many things that God has done. There's so much work that has been accomplished for us to be able to see. The signs performed were quality. They were signs from the heart of God. They were pure signs, strong signs, signs that God's power alone could do. I think when we think and we look at our own lives, we realize that this is true. That there are things that happen in our lives that are clearly the work of God. And we can choose to sort of chalk things up to coincidence. Or maybe you're just somebody that thinks you get lucky a lot. But there are constantly things where we see the handiwork of God. Think about just the fact that if you're a parent, think about the child that is in front of you. It is a miracle work of God that stands right before you, isn't it? Uh, the complexity of our world, the complexity of our bodies. I, I read an article one time about just the complexity of the human eye and all the different things that have to sort of take place and be just right in order for the human eye to see. There is this work of God that is miraculous, that is right in front of us or, you know, right in us in terms of our own complexity. It's this overwhelming evidence and that unbelief looks at that evidence and rejects it. But secondly, the unbelief of evidence right before their eyes. Note too here the words, it says, before them, right? Though they had done so many signs before them. Jesus didn't just do miracles out in some desert or out in some far off place. He did them right before his very eyes where people could easily see them. Sorry, I'll catch up here. In the, well, maybe I won't. <laughs> Just keep clicking and good things happen, right? It's right before their very eyes where people could easily see them. I mean, just look around at nature itself, right? In Romans, it talks about that the invisible qualities of God can be seen in its creation around us. Uh, there are things that are right in front of us that we see every day. There is the breath that we take every day that is this miraculous miracle that is literally right in front of us. The secular mind can understand science and math, but it cannot comprehend spiritual truth. Even regarding science and math, they can only understand how things are, not why they are. Faith enables us to gain discernment of the ultimate issues, of the purpose of all things. There's a seminary professor, uh, his name was Michael Horton, and he made this observation one time. He said, the ultimate tragedy of man's self-understanding is that he believes himself to be free, has all the feelings of a free agent, but does not realize that he is a slave to sin and serves the will of Satan. See, there's this reality that is our lives. Our job as followers then is to look to Jesus 
and through Jesus to kind of poke holes in the darkness, to show people their bondage to sin and their freedom that is found in Christ. We don't preach hate like, you know, people who just gladly thrust hell into people's faces. We offer rescue and healing from the worst disease of all. We need some of this urgency that Jesus had when he spoke his very last sermon. Because it's an unbelief that's not just the works of Jesus, but it's the things that are occurring right in front of people. But there's a third part of this verse as well. And it is that the unbelief of hearts that are closed to God. Again, at the end of this verse, you'll see it says, and they still would not believe him. Their hearts were shut. They were closed to the clear and undeniable evidence that Jesus was the son of God. They were in a state of unbelief and their unbelief was illogical. It made no sense. I I think one maybe the best examples of this that I think about is kind of in the argument of evolution and creationism. And I was listening to an interview one time by Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins is an atheist, and he just... But his desire, so deeply rooted in the idea of not acknowledging that there is a God, took him to a place where he decided that he thought a legitimate offer of how the world began was the aliens came down and started life on Earth. And I thought, wow... Look at the faith of that. Like, imagine having that much faith to believe that there is aliens that came and started life on the earth. Why would you do that? Why? Because there is a determination to not acknowledge or allow yourself to believe that there could be a God. Sometimes unbelief is based... And an ideology that is so illogical, but it is so necessary to place God out of existence. Well, there's a second part of this, a second principle here of unbelief. It's not just the rejection of miracles and works, but it's also a rejection of revelation. Uh, Move to the next verse here in verse 38. It says, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The message here was God himself. The message was both words and deeds of Jesus. All that Jesus did through his preaching and teaching revealed the truth. So God gave man more than just words. It's more than just ink and a paper, right? It's it's more than just a book. It's actually a man. God gave man a life to live out his words. He gave man a person. And so think about this for a second because I think that this is important, especially when we come back to this idea of doubt. Consider who Jesus really was in terms of the revelation of truth for all of us. Here's just a few quick things. But Jesus not only to, came not only to speak the truth, but to live the truth. Not only to speak the words, but to do the works. Not only to preach God's will, but to demonstrate God's will. Not only to teach men, but to show men how to live. See, isn't it interesting that God didn't just give us a plan. He, he didn't just come and give us, you know, sort of a set of Ten Commandments written on stone and saying, here it is. But he sent himself as a man to live out, not just speak and teach, but to live out and to demonstrate the truth of what the Father desires for each one of us. It was Jesus And yet, despite the fact that God sent his own son into the world to proclaim his message and his revelation, men still don't believe. And so once again, they act illogically, making no sense whatever, whatsoever. There's a rejection of the miracles and works. There's a rejection of the revelation that is Jesus Christ. But then unbelief also entails a third rejection, And it is the rejection of power. Look at verse 39. It says, therefore, they could not believe 
For again, Isaiah said, notice, this is prophesied, this is predicted. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, I think that that right there is at the heart of unbelief, is that when we begin to love the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God, and that's the stem of what direction we move with our doubts and our questions, is do we care about what God says and what God thinks Or are we more concerned about the glory of man? See, a lot of times I think it's a lot easier for us to adopt an ideology, a process, an an answer to things, a conclusion, because we want to align with what other people think. We want to align with what the common thoughts in the world are. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be an outlier. And yet faith is exactly that. It's stepping out from what is common. It's stepping out from what makes sense at a human level. It is saying, I care more about the glory of God in this question, in this difficulty, in this thing that doesn't make sense. I care more about the glory of God than I do the glory of man. So unbelief rejects miracles, it rejects revelation, and unbelief rejects the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord uh, that's referred to uh, in verse 38 uh, is talking about the strength of God, uh, his power to save, to deliver, to give life. The arm that saves and gives life is Jesus. Unbelief rejects the arm and salvation of the Lord. And so here's an important pause for us, right? Is that before we go any further in the passage, we need to know this critical matter of unbelief. And it is this, that unbelief results in some very serious consequences. A person cannot reject Jesus Christ and expect matters to stay as they are. No matter how mild the person's rejection is, the matter is serious to God. A person may only reject God in their thoughts, never saying a word or committing a public sin against him. But no matter how mild the the rejection, God still cannot overlook the rejection of his son. He loves his son too much. The son has done too much for man. When a person has a chance to see and open their heart, but chooses to close his heart, that chooses to reject, then it is on them, and that person suffers the consequences. In other words, when God has loved the world and done so much for man, man cannot deny God's son and expect to suffer no consequences. And the consequences are the results of unbelief. And those results are spelled out. Let's just look at a few from this passage One is that God blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. God hardens the heart of the unbeliever. God condemns the unbeliever to be lost. God never reveals his glory to an unbeliever. Now, let's let's think about this for a second, because, right, if we're honest, this sort of just, it it takes a toll on our soul, doesn't it? Like, Like, how can a loving God respond this way like how can this really be true isn't it true that God died for everybody for all sins isn't it true that God's desire is that all men might come to know him and so what is this answer what does this mean that God blinds the eyes that he hardens the heart that he condemns the unbeliever and reveals and and withholds his glory being revealed to those people what it means is that we have a choice 
It means that God has given his full revelation, that he has performed these miracles and works before us for all of us to be able to see, that he has demonstrated his power. And yet we have a choice that in our questions and in our doubt, we can choose to by faith receive Christ or we can choose to allow that doubt to drift into unbelief. And in that unbelief, our choices have allowed our hearts to become hardened, our eyes to become blind. It has blocked our own sin, like uh, the professor was saying, that it's our own sin that blocks our ability to be able to see the glory of God. Does it mean that God causes the unbelief of man before he's ever born? No. It would be wrong to say that he has forced into unbelief men and women who otherwise would have believed. It would be wrong to conclude from these verses that John supports an extreme determinism in which God assigns otherwise neutral people to either belief or otherwise unbelief. John's comment here is that people who receive, refuse to believe will experience judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 says, And with all wicked deception... For those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's what we're saying. Is that God is going to allow us to believe what we want to believe. That he will demonstrate, he will reveal himself, that he has shown us all that we need. But in our doubt, we can either choose to receive or reject it. And we can choose to move forward in faith or we can choose to rest and drift in unbelief. And God will allow that to happen. The significance of this is twofold. One is that it highlights the urgency of coming to faith. There is an urgency to this. That if you have been in a place where you're sitting and pondering question after question after question, and you just feel like I can't dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and so I'm just not quite there yet, there is an urgency for you. Because God is asking for you to step out in faith. He's asking you to trust what he said, even if you can't figure it all out, even if you can't explain it all. Because if you sit in question after question and doubt after doubt over the course of a lifetime, you will pronounce judgment on yourself through the rejection of Christ. But secondly, it assures us that when we are confronted with hardened unbelief, it does not mean that God has lost control. In fact, it means that God is active in judgment as well as salvation. We know that God is actively working out our salvation, right? That he is actively involved in our salvation. I think sometimes what we forget about is that God is also actively at work in our judgment as well. What scripture teaches is that God has a certain set of laws, you might say, uh, for the universe. If a person you know, does something, then something will happen. If somebody does something else, then something else will happen. If a person, uh, you know, follows Christ, then there's certain things that uh, will happen. Scripture teaches that unbelief is governed by these laws. Let, let me give you a couple of examples of these laws. There's the law of sowing and reaping. Uh, if a person sows unbelief, he reaps unbelief. Uh, there is the law of seeking. If a person seeks he finds. The more he seeks, the more he finds. And then there's the law of willful stubbornness. The more stubborn a person becomes, the more he refuses to repent, the more hardened he becomes. In fact, a person can become so stubborn and hardened that he never repents and never even thinks about repenting. The Bible is saying that if a person hardens his mind and heart to the truth, he becomes conditioned more and more against the truth. And his openness and his sensitivity to Jesus dwindles more and more. And it can dwindle so much that it's gone. 
and eventually forever. God allows people to live under the same laws and make the same choice of life day by day. Believers have made the choice to follow God's son. Unbelievers are also making a choice, a choice not to follow God's son. And as Jesus says, the words of judgment are already spoken. They are set up as God's laws and will within the universe. And the law and the will of God that Jesus proclaimed, and it will be his words that will become our judge at the end of time. See, many people, they they saw Jesus teach and heal. They saw him, and yet they did not understand what had come to him, who had come to him. God's own voice had spoke, and yet many remained deaf to his truth. And after Jesus spoke this brief, final public message, he started down a road leading them to the cross. Michael Card said this, he said, the light was about to leave. He could do nothing more for them but die. There's this state of unbelief that is serious, that has consequences. And I think the encouragement to us is that if we sit in doubt for too long, we will, without even realizing it, drift out to sea. If you've ever been in a little raft and you've gone out onto a lake or the ocean, and if you just sit there for too long, what happens? Eventually, you will find yourself sort of sucked out into the lake or into the sea. And before you know it, you will be far from where you need to be. And in some situations, people have gotten stuck to the point where it becomes deadly and they're not able to get back. The same is true with unbelief. But there is good news, right? There is hope. There is the alternative for this. And this is the testimony of Jesus. And this is the last part of this passage that we're looking at this morning. Let me ask you this question. If you knew that your words today would be your final words to your friends and family, what is it, what is it that you would say? What is it that you would communicate? My guess is that a lot of us would communicate the things that are deep truths in our life. We would put off all the kind of supplementary types of conversation We wouldn't continue any arguments. We wouldn't continue to sort of drum life principles. But we would speak to the heart of the deep truths of life. A lot of people believe that there's a heaven. Most people believe that there's some concept of heaven. Uh, There was a recent poll that was taken that said that 72% of people they surveyed said that they believed in an existence of heaven where people lived forever with God after they would die. Uh, You know, not necessarily talking about how you get to heaven, but just the existence of heaven. But 72%, there's still the other 28%. You ever stop to think about what that 28% thinks? What the purpose of life is? What the purpose of their being is? Maybe you've heard of Robert Ingersoll. He was an atheist. He was a famous anti-Christian propagandist and orator in the days uh, just after the Civil War. And once in front of a large crowd, Ingersoll pulled out his pocket watch and he gave God five minutes. Strike me dead or be disproved, he said. After all, didn't the Bible record where God struck men dead for blasphemy? Then let me do that now. Holding his watch, he blasphemed God and then he counted off the minutes. The crowd counted two as one minute went by, and then two, three, four, five. When nothing happened, Ingersoll snapped his watch shut. There, you see, there is no God or I would be dead. And there was a British preacher, Joseph Parker, that when he heard about this, he had this response. He said, and did the American gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? Ingersoll was a friend of Philip Brooks, the man who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem. And when Brooks became seriously ill, he requested that none of his friends come to visit him. But when Ingersoll came, 
he, this, the atheist, he came to see him. He let him come in right away. And Ingersoll, he said to him, I appreciate this very much, especially when you aren't letting any of your close friends to see you. And Brooks said, oh, I'm confident of seeing them in the next world, but this may be my last chance to see you. <laughs> it's serious, right? Unbelief. It's a serious thing. It's not just, it's not just questions and doubt. It has eternal consequences. Ingersoll died at the age of 65 in 1899, and notices of his death were printed in all the major newspapers in New England. And in every one, as part of the funeral notice, there was a single, very ironic line There will be no music. Isn't that interesting? There will be no music. If somehow I knew that my next sermon would be my last, what would I preach? Well, Jesus knew that this was his last sermon. And as his time on earth was drawing to a close, he delivered a final sermon to appeal for people to embrace the light. One translation of this uh, actually says that Jesus cried aloud. There is a sense of urgency to this, his last message before his passion. These words emphatically spoke and provide a climactic summary to his ministry. In these seven verses, Jesus affirms his union with the Father along with a message of hope for tomorrow and light for our darkness. He also states the position of believers and unbelievers. And so look at with me, verses 44 through 50, and we'll finish this out. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but... In him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him. On, that, on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Isn't this interesting? I think it's interesting. This is Jesus' last sort of moment, right? This is his last verbal moment, his last sermon. And he doesn't say, hey, remember this and look at this. And do you remember when I said this? And let me, let's re-talk, you know, what I talked about in Matthew chapter 5. And let, let's go through all this. No, he says, listen, all of this, all of this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, he's proclaiming his deity. That, that what he has done and what he has said is not just good teaching. It's not just ideas. It's not just principles but it is the very words and will of the Father. To trust Jesus is to trust the Father. Jesus is the visible self-expression of the Father. He is God the Son. The triune God has one consciousness that is present in a threefold way with three unified centers of harmony, balance, and completeness, inseparable yet distinct. The three divine persons are in one another, yet remain distinct from one another. We experience salvation by being invited into the love and joy and peace that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been involved with throughout all eternity. Every believer will face judgment at every bit of scripture that was ever read and ever heard. The very word that he rejects becomes his judge. Why? Because the written word points to the living word, Jesus Christ. The rejection of the Savior is actually passing judgment on themselves. It's not Christ who judges, but it is the truth about Christ that judges our own hearts. Luke chapter 10 verse 16 says, The one who hears, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Let me sort of 
close with these kind of four sort of points of application about what Jesus said. Jesus said and did all that the Father wanted him to do as the Father's agent. He was the image of Yahweh. Verses 44 and 45. Sorry, I'm getting there. Secondly, remember that the light of Jesus is the only way out of spiritual darkness and death. Verse 46. Third, Jesus came as the only Savior, and his message judges unbelief. Verses 47 and 48. Sorry, I'm catching up. And then lastly, there is this commandment. Jesus talks about he's been commanded by God. It is God the Father alone acting through the Son alone to bring about eternal life. And so that's really what belief is, right? It's acknowledging that Jesus was the Son of God and that he acted and lived according to the will and work of the Father. I think it's interesting, you know, how arresting officers will read people the Miranda rights. You know, what you say may be held against you. Well, Jesus kind of warns here, what you hear and reject will be held against you. The same message that proclaims life for believers proclaims wrath for unbelievers. The Father exercises righteous judgment. The wrath of God is a very unpopular topic, and yet it is clearly taught in Scripture. To escape God's wrath, we flee to his love. And so in that sense, judgment begins now and salvation begins now. We have a choice to make. Do we embrace the light of life or the darkness of judgment? The decision that we call people to is an ultimate decision with eternal consequences. It's not an invitation just to believe so that in some sort of distant future we might be saved from judgment. It is a call to salvation now so that in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our questions, we can, by faith, receive life and light. It's judgment beginning now, salvation beginning now. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to attend a marriage conference. It was uh, just a really great time that we had together and uh, just appreciated the opportunity to be able to be away last weekend for that. Um, Sort of the point of the weekend was this idea that in a marriage relationship, we are to... Uh, pursue oneness together as a couple. Uh, but one of the key thoughts that sort of uh, happened throughout all of the time uh, that we were there was that when it comes to your marriage relationship, you're, you're never just standing still. You're always moving in one direction or the other. You're either moving towards oneness or you're drifting towards isolation. There is no stagnant state of the marriage relationship. Well, I think the same is true in our spiritual relationship, that there is no stagnant state, that we have doubts and we have questions and we have a choice that we can make and we can pursue Christ and we can pursue faith and it will move us in our relationship with him. But if we don't, then it has a tendency to drift into unbelief. And, and so what is it that moves us? It, it is the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that we're going to celebrate this next week becomes the pinpoint of our faith for all of our doubt. That when we don't understand, that when we can't make sense of something, that when we have questions, it, it doesn't mean that we just sort of throw our hands up and we don't care anymore, but that as we pursue it, we pursue it in light of a God who has demonstrated Power, who has demonstrated life and eternal salvation. And that in that context, we can have faith, we can trust that what we don't see, that what we don't understand, we can trust what we do see and what we do understand. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he loves us, that he died for us, that he saves us on the basis of our faith. And that becomes the anchor for our doubt. So that while we're wrestling and while we're trying to figure things out, that we are moving in faith. And it will anchor us, it'll hold us 
and keep us from drifting into unbelief. I think judgment and salvation are those two sort of ends of the spectrum. The consequences of our decisions begin to work themselves out in our present lives. Uh, It's like a person with a curable disease. The antibiotic begins to reverse the effects of the disease at once. Without it, the doom of of the infection grows daily. To refuse the medicine is to succumb to its disease. To refuse to have faith is to be swallowed by the darkness. Uh, There's a Navy officer that came to faith and he described the difference Jesus made in this. He said, I feel like I have found a soft pillow to lay my weary heart on. I think that that's good. We want to believe the unbelievable, to imagine the unimaginable, to search out the unreachable, Then the unreachable God searches us out by his son, Jesus, and asks us to believe the unbelievable, that he has dealt decisively with the sin problem so that we may receive the unimaginable glory and grace through his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word, and more importantly, God, we thank you for the testimony of your life. God, we thank you that you obediently followed the will and the work of the Father, even to the cross. And God, we acknowledge in our lives sometimes we struggle and we wrestle with different questions that we have and we want to make sense of things in so many ways. And yet, God, you call us to faith. You call us to trust you, to depend on you. And so, God, when our hearts are weak and when our questions are full, God, help us to cast our eyes on the person of Jesus, to remember, to be thankful, to give praise for all that you've done, for who you are, and, God, for the great power that you have displayed in our lives. God, may the person of Jesus Anchor all of the things that we question, all of the doubts that we have. And God, may we be like the Father who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, we thank you and we praise you for this in Jesus' name, amen.